The use of bifacial solar panels is exploding in utility scale applications. And at the end of the show, you're going to hear about how this is being integrated into solar projects around the world. Next Tracker is our supporter of the show. They're building connected power plants of the future by integrating new solar technologies like bifacial panels, storage, and advanced control software. At the end of the show, we're going to tell you about some important tech trends in solar, including bifacial, with Next Tracker CEO and industry veteran Dan Sugar. So stay tuned. We're also brought to you by Trina Solar, a global leader in PV modules and smart energy solutions. With decades of industry recognition and awards, Trina is committed to delivering reliable and fully bankable solar technology around the world. It even has its state key laboratory of PV science and technology, where scientists work to break new solar cell efficiency records year after year. Learn more at trinasolar.com backslash US. SNC Electric is also a supporter of the show. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges, and not all of them are wired. SNC Electric is a leader in non-wires alternatives like microgrids that can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver power. SNC Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over a hundred years. Find out more at snc.com/nwa. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange from Greentech Media. I'm Shale Khan of Energy Impact Partners. So as of this recording, the S&P 500 stock index is up 13% so far this year in 2020. Let's make some comparisons, shall we? Remember, we're comparing against 13% for the S&P. In solar, let's talk about the suppliers. SunPower up 385%. First Solar up 59%. Enphase up 447%. SolarEdge up 83%. Just the suppliers? No. How about downstream? Sunrun up 345%. Sonova up 281%. Is it just solar? No. Let's talk about wind. Vestas up 95%. Siemens Gamesa up 82%. Is it just solar and wind? No. Let's talk about fuel cells. Bloom up 235%. Plug Power up 778%. Ballard Power up 142%. And of course, all of that is to say nothing of Tesla, which is up a whopping 634% so far this year um, off of what was already a pretty ridiculous market cap, or to say anything of all of the you know, bevy of new electric vehicle SPACs, which are suddenly public companies and all of which have been trading up since their SPACs, since the company went public. So needless to say, 2020 has been a great year for quote unquote climate oriented public companies. Even beyond the SPAC mania, virtually across the board, as far as I can tell, almost every clean energy or climate company has dramatically outperformed market indices, and almost all of them now have record high equity value. So what's going on here? And more importantly, I think, what might it mean for the next generation of climate technology companies? Well, Jim Cramer from Mad Money was unavailable, so I brought you the next best thing. Uh, Samir Reddy is with me. Samir is my partner at Energy Impact Partners. He sits on the board of companies like Arcadia Power, Opus One, Enchanted Rock, and a bunch of others. And he, like me, has been marveling over this public market madness uh, for the past year and thinking about what it might mean for the companies that we think about investing in and just the broader ecosystem. Samir, welcome. 
Thanks, Shale. Uh, great to great to be on the podcast. Long time listener, first time caller, and and I have to say a quick anecdote. This used to the interchange used to be my my pre workout hype up music um, at the gym that I used to go to. And uh, and funny enough, funny anecdote. Matthew Sachs of Sea Power and I ran into each other at the gym while both of us happened to be uh, listening to the interchange. And I think we both quickly came to the conclusion that this is the worst gym hype up podcast anyone could possibly listen to. Oh man, that's okay. Well, that's a good challenge though. Cause then I, now, now I'm going to try to make the podcast more like hype music. Um, all right. So we're here to talk. I think, you know, we want to spend a little bit of time on, of, of what's going on in the public markets, but I think we want to spend probably more time talking about what it might mean and what might come next, but, but let's spend a minute on it. You know, what speculation can we offer about what's going on here? Obviously, markets are up in general and there's been fiscal stimulus, but clearly there is something different going on amongst this crop of clean energy and climate companies. What do we think is happening? Yeah, so it's a really good question. I think from a macro perspective, as you pointed out, um, there's been incredibly loose monetary policy going into COVID and then COVID only poured more gasoline onto the fire. So I think, you know, if you look at opportunity costs and where else you put your money, both for retail investors and for institutional investors, uh, I think the stock market um, is is benefiting from that in a lot of ways. And I, and I think a lot of that kind of broader macro picture is really kind of resetting the way we think about company valuations, period. Um, but to your point, that that doesn't explain everything. I think, um, you know, there, there are probably a couple of things at play from, from my perspective. I think uh, if you look at a lot of the oil and gas money, that's transitioning over. I think the New York State Pension Fund is a really good example of that, where you know they're effectively now categorizing oil and gas stocks uh, uh, akin to other sin stocks like casinos and tobacco, and and they're transitioning over um, a lot of money that they were investing in oil and gas into other avenues. So so clean tech is clearly going to be a beneficiary of that. Um, so if you look at all of the capital that's available, if you look at all of the uh, the sort of legacy oil and gas money that was investing in those sectors that now is looking for a home, uh, I think clean tech is clearly going to Kind of benefit from that, and then and then I think more broadly, um, you take all of that pent up demand uh, that's that's happening right now. You layer in, you know, a Biden administration, which is creating a lot of excitement, regardless of what the government looks like. If it's divided or not, it's still going to create a ton of hype around the sector. Uh, and then you then you then you ask the question, where does that money go? I mean, and as you know, Shale, in the last ten years, pretty much every VC in the sector kind of disappeared from from clean tech, and it left very few attractive homes. Uh, for the for these for a lot of these funds that are now newly available, so you have very few attractive candidates in the public markets. Uh, virtually infinite money supply, uh, chasing those uh, those relatively finite number of companies. Yeah, you alluded to a couple of things that I think are interesting. One is the sort of scarcity value in every one of those categories that I mentioned. There aren't that many other companies that you can point to. So if you want to bet on residential solar, especially with Sunrun having bought Vivint. Right, you've got Sunrun and Sonova, and then there's a bunch of sort of around the periphery. It's similar in most of these sectors. There aren't that many. So there is some scarcity value if you really like the sector. Another thing you alluded to, which I think is we should talk about because I think it's it may be a myth that can be dispelled a little bit, is we saw this a lot with like so when Nicolo went public via SPAC, then it the stock ran up like crazy. And so there's a lot of speculation about Robinhood. Uh, retail investors, right? And the idea was maybe it's just, you know, dumb money, like the type of people who were investing in Teslas, it was running up the stock price. And it's all us like you and I with our retail Robinhood accounts driving up these stock prices. Do we have any sense of the degree to which that is true or untrue? 
more broadly across the sector? Um, you know, I, it's a good question. I think more broadly, I guess, beyond, beyond the, the sector that, in which we operate, I, I think retail investing is up. Um, I think, you know, Bank of America recently came out and stated it was up something like, you know, 5% from 15% last year to something like 20% this year. So there is there is an uptick, and especially in, in option uh, investing. So uh, I think there's been a record amount of investing in call options by retail investors. But I, I still don't think that it explains, you know, nearly enough of the story. There's so much institutional money that's really driving demand here. And, and you know, we've seen it from announcements from, you know, like, like we talked about, the New York State Pension Fund to BlackRock, major fund managers, Fidelity are making huge bets uh, across ESG. And, and I think it's that scarcity value that you talked about that's, that's, that's the real driver here. Right. So, you know, there's only, I think, a certain degree to which we're going to be able to speculate on like why this is exactly. And I think you listed probably most of the important reasons, but regardless of why it is happening. Um, and we, we now find ourselves in a situation where to the extent that there are climate oriented companies, and by the way, it's not just clean energy. Like I didn't even mention, you know, the sort of fake meat companies and others that are related, but to the extent that these companies are public, they are performing generally extraordinarily well as a class. So I think the more important question for us is, um, what does this mean? What does it mean for the companies themselves? And then what does that mean as it flows downstream into earlier stage companies and technologies that are still trying to reach that point? So let's start with at the high level. If you're one of these companies, I listed you know 10 of them, but there are more. If you're one of these companies and all of a sudden over the course of nine months in 2020, uh, you're worth three times as much as you were in the public markets at the beginning of the year. What does that mean in terms of your strategic thinking? Like, what might you do that you might not do otherwise? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think from a from a macro perspective, you sort of first have to if you're if you're the CEO or management of that company, you first have to ask the question. You know, what's what's fundamentally changed in my business to warrant this massive valuation? So, if you look at all the, all the cloud companies, for example. We can clearly point to you know the way that uh, that enterprises are now consuming software is just fundamentally different pre and post COVID. I think for for a lot of these other companies, I I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. So I, I think a lot of the companies you mentioned are going to have a really interesting dilemma on their hands where they're still operating within the same markets. I'm not sure that the underlying markets are massive beneficiaries in any way from anything that's happened recently uh, from a fundamental perspective. So they're going to have to come up with new and creative ways to grow. Um, so I think that's potentially good and bad. I think I think in, in some ways, you know, for the first time ever, a lot of the companies you mentioned, Jill, are, are have, have always been sort of vying for survival. I mean, even Tesla, which is our crown jewel, um, there were points in, in, in its public history where folks wondered if, if they would still be around. And now all of these companies have an amazing war chest, an amazing currency to go out and, and and spend aggressively. So I, I'd expect us to see, you know, much more aggressive pursuit from an M&A perspective. For the first time, they have such a such a strong currency that they can make virtually make any acquisition accretive to their stock. And I think that's actually the expectation and the only way they're going to hit these lofty growth ambitions. And then, you know, we, you and I have talked about a lot of the ways that this can benefit our sector from acquisition of talent. Um, so you can spend uh, less efficiently on talent the same way Google and Amazon and and Microsoft think about uh, acquiring incredible talent to come work on uh, a lot of their key initiatives. Um, so I do think it, it has the potential to create this really virtuous cycle for those companies. Um, but I think it's the companies that that aren't sort of seizing this moment in time where they're where they're sitting on this incredible currency. Um, I think those companies are really going to regret it. 
Yeah, it creates an interesting set of strategic questions, right? Not to over-index to Tesla, but Tesla's been an interesting case where every time the stock hits some new peak, everybody thinks, oh man, this is this is the peak and it's going to have to crash. Um, and or the company should do something inorganic to grow. And yet in the case of Tesla, they've made relatively few acquisitions. And you know, of the acquisitions that they've made, SolarCity being the perfect example, they have not been viewed particularly positively. And yet Tesla has obviously continued to rise into the stratosphere. So there's one, there's, I think, a, literally an example of one of a company that has said like, okay, I've got an inflated, arguably inflated valuation. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing uh, and just keep, you know, the hype going by releasing new products and ideas. And it works. Um, but then there's a, a million other examples of companies that have gotten into that situation and said, you know what, I have this like really strong currency. I should take advantage of this to do something inorganic. And as you said, think about making acquisitions potentially. Yeah, that, that's such a good point, Shell. I mean, I think we it's easy for, for me to say, oh, they should just go scoop up a bunch of companies and, you know, integrate it in, into their business and problem solve. But, but the I think a lot of the companies you mentioned, and, and most companies in our sector, they just don't have a culture of M and A. They they just haven't been able to do it before because you know they didn't have the currency and, and because of, of just some of the fundamental challenges that a lot of them faced historically. So I do think you know you looked at companies like Cisco or Salesforce or Amazon, Google. I mean those companies have M and A machines where they can make 20, 25 acquisitions a year and then seamlessly integrate it or or not integrate it into their into their core business. And I do think that's a you know, a bit of a skill set that a lot of these new uh, clean tech incumbents are going to have to start to um, develop over time. So this is the reason that I wanted to have this conversation, because I think to the extent that this plays out, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. It solves potentially one of the biggest challenges that we've seen historically in this clean tech or climate tech sector. And one of the reasons why venture capitalists abandoned the sector a decade ago, which is that there wasn't a clear path to really strong exits to liquidity events, to acquisitions, right? So a few companies made it through an IPO window in that first wave. Um, but once you looked past them, there just weren't very many really big acquisitions. And in basically every other sector where you have a lot of venture capital and a lot of risk-based risk, risk -based capital, um, there's a combination of both of those things. There's always going to be a few IPOs, but there are many more big acquisitions. Typically, you mentioned in the sort of like software world, it's true. It's also true in biotech and pharma, and it's true in all these other sectors. Energy did not have that historically. And so the thing I think we're looking out for here is if the fact that there is this inflated currency from all these public companies means that some of these companies start to build that M&A machine and say, okay, let's make start making some strategic acquisitions that can you know, be accretive to our business. Um, and they build that up, then it's proving that there is an exit pathway for companies in this sector, and that sends a strong signal earlier stage. It sends a strong signal all the way back to like the R&D world, and it creates a pull into the market, which we've never really had because it's always been a push from innovators who are just like trying to build something new without a, a clear path to exit. So I guess the question is like, we're, we're painting a really positive picture here. Do you think it's realistic? Do you think that might happen? And how quickly does it need to happen? Yeah. You know, I, I think if you look at other sect, like I think cybersecurity where, you know, we spend quite a bit of time as well is, is a really good analog for this. You look at 
the beginning of the decade, you know, venture investing in cybersecurity was less than a billion a year. And today it's 10 billion a year. So you, so you sort of ask the question, why? Um, at the beginning of the decade, you had big exits like FireEye, Palo Alto, you know, McAfee, Mandiant, all multi-billion dollar exits uh, in cybersecurity, which started to create this really interesting snowball effect, the exact one that you just mentioned, where all of a sudden a bunch of venture funds were being launched specifically with this thesis in, thesis in mind. Every generalist venture firm you know, had to have a good answer around what they're doing in cybersecurity, the same way it's happening right now around uh, climate tech. And then all of those companies that that you know, had major ac- exits or IPOs that I, that I mentioned all of a sudden became logical acquirers. So they were able to build their currency and create a, rel- a really healthy uh, acquisition ecosystem for new startups. So then it created this virtuous cycle where then more new startups were getting funded. And then you have a flock of talent, which is now moving into the sector because they see that this is a really great way to start a company. This is a great place to, to build a really successful enterprise. Um, and then, you know, the 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 role of the chief in, in this analog, the role of the chief information security officer uh, really emerged to prominence uh, within within many companies. They became a really sophisticated buyer because all of those venture dollars were now being used to seed these markets and create buyer awareness the same way that it could happen in your residential energy or CNI energy as well, the role of the chief sustainability officer. So, you, so it's not too hard to imagine um, that role where we're kind of uh, where money sort of begets money and you have this virtuous cycle. So you know, obviously, you know, there are, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, there, there are a lot of, you know, potential pitfalls along the way, but I, I do think that is, um, you know, that is one potential outcome that we're really excited about. So far, we're talking, I think, largely theoretically, right? We're, we're at like stage one of this transition, which is the public markets have fallen in love with a bunch of climate tech companies. And so their, their valuations shot upward this year. We haven't yet seen a ton of merger and acquisition activity in the space. Do you think that that's because it just takes a while to get the gears spinning? Like you said, they, they historically have not been particularly acquisitive companies. And so, or they have another currency to make acquisitions anyway. And so it's just going to take them a while to like, you know, get started doing this. Or do you think that they haven't woken up yet to this opportunity or even this need? You know, I think the, at the very preamble of this, this episode, you sort of talked about how quickly these share prices accelerated. So, you know, we're talking about four or five x type um, share price multiples in in just three to six months, and that, that's not a lot of time to really develop an M and A strategy. So I think the it's sort of the the share price currency and these in these new lofty expectations for many of these companies, um, lofty growth expectations, which is now necessitating an M and A strategy for for many companies who might not have had a clear M and A strategy previously. So I think there's a little bit of catching up to do, where the M and A strategy has to catch up to their stock price. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, whether that means, you know, many of those companies that you mentioned who might be operating in somewhat constrained markets, uh, acquiring horizontally to kind of expand their offering to their, their to their existing customers or acquiring, acquiring vertically, you know, similar to how, you know, Fluence's uh, acquisition of uh, companies like AMS or Imbala's um, sale to companies like Generac. So, so I do think there's probably a lot of uh, kind of M and A uh, strategy work that has to be done on a lot of these companies um, that pr- probably previously ha- hadn't been getting done. So the other factor at play here, which we can fall into the rabbit hole of, and I will attempt not to, but want to talk about for a second, which is uh, the role of SPACs, which is which is happening in tandem, right? So all those companies that I mentioned were previously existing public companies. None of them were SPAC companies. But in addition to the companies that I mentioned, we now have a dozen or so um, climate tech, energy and mobility related SPAC 
candidates, many of, some of which have actually closed their mergers, all of which are trading up at this point. So further indications of the market interest. But the other thing that the SPAC does is it provides an alternative pathway to the public markets for private companies that don't see an attractive acquisition offer on the table. And what we've been seeing so far with the SPACs that have occurred is that the valuations that these companies are getting in the public markets via the SPAC and then afterwards, as the stock starts to trade, is, I guess I would say, surprisingly high and certainly higher than what they have been seeing in the private markets, which is what makes um, the SPAC attractive to the the prior investors. How do you think that sort of new lane on this highway plays into this entire dynamic? Does it support the virtuous, virtuous cycle or does it put a, a halt to it? Yeah. I mean, on, on the one end, and by the way, congratulations for waiting at least 15 minutes to bring up SPACs. I think that's an achievement in, in itself. <laughs> I do think I said it before. I've been trying very hard not to. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's, it, it kind of goes back to the your previous question around why it's taken so long for M&A to transpire in, in this sector. And it's because there's never been that sense of urgency because, you know, we're like, what other home were these companies going to find other than M&A? And, and now SPACs all of a sudden have emerged and they've created this really interesting opportunity for companies to get big really quickly. And that's, you know, that's creating a lot of competitive tension. It's creating a, a significant urgency um, for a lot of these strategics to move quickly because now for the first time, there's a very credible alternative that in many ways is a more attractive alternative. The, the company gets to remain uh, independent. Uh, they can get to a level of scale, and uh, which, which matters a lot in, in this sector, uh, where having credibility with buyers if you want to sell to folks like Microsoft and Apple and Amazon, you know, it matters a lot. Um, so, so overall, I think SPACs are only going to create more competitive tension and, and, and probably more of an impetus for a, a lot of these big incumbents in our sector to move more quickly, not, not less quickly. Plenty more coming up with Shale and Samir. First, a word about our supporters of the show. Thank you to Trina Solar for supporting the interchange. Utility scale solar is poised for major growth in the coming years. As the next major step forward for the solar industry, Trina Solar introduced the Trina Pro utility solution to make things easier for project developers and EPCs. Trina Pro combines tier one modules, state-of-the-art trackers and industry-leading inverters for one customized smart solution that improves energy gains while lowering the levelized cost of energy. The first all-in-one solar solution of its kind, Trina Pro increases project reliability, optimizes installation, and ensures overall project value. Visit trinasolar.com backslash US to contact Trina or download the free Trina Pro solution guidebook and learn more about the benefits of the all-in-one Trina Pro utility solution. We're also supported by SNC Electric Company. Power-related challenges and opportunities are becoming way more complex. Reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, they can all jeopardize operations. Solving challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. And even with dedicated resources, arriving at that conclusion can be uncertain, it can be time-consuming. Well, you can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence by working with an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options developed specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. We've been talking about the sort of new incumbents. I do think we should talk for a minute about the old incumbents because in in the energy sector the assumption 
in the first wave in clean tech, and I think even since then has been, if you're going to get bought, you're going to get bought by some combination of either the sort, depending on your company, you know, the sort of like big providers of equipment into the energy sector. So they're like GE, Siemens, ABB type companies, or maybe you'll get bought by the oil and gas companies who are trying to get into the clean energy world. So Shell, BP, Total, you know, Equinor, whoever that might be. Those are the those are the old incumbents in this space. Do you think that this then creates, I mean, I guess this is to your point, even more competitive tension for them and they, they, they've been the most acquisitive, right? Like Shell has made more acquisitions in this space than any other company, full stop by like a fair margin. Um, does this change their strategy at all? Yeah, I, I think those companies are going to be are, are in a really interesting place right now because on the one end, they don't benefit from a lot of the currency appreciation that the clean tech incumbents have. So their ability to pay pay is just significantly less than those clean tech incumbents. Um, but they probably have a much higher necessity uh, to to acquire into the sector, just given that their their businesses, especially oil and gas players, um, you know, have to make this transition. Their shareholders and their boards are expecting them to make this transition. So I guess the big question is, you know, how aggressively are they going to lean in to this moment in time when it's going to be really hard for them to acquire any company um, at the multiples that they're trading at right now and make it accretive when a lot of the companies you mentioned at the preamble are trading at, you know, unprecedented revenue multiples, not even let alone kind of EBITDA multiples. All right. So let's talk about what might go wrong, right? There, there, so the what might go right, at least from the perspective of, look, like, like, let's just say at the, the high level, forget, you know, you and I in our day jobs, we want to see... We want to see the companies that we invest in and that others invest in in this sector have really big successes because that's good for us. It's good for them. It's good for the ecosystem. But but at the high level, I mean, the reason we care about this is that there is clearly, from a climate perspective, in order to accelerate the transition to a zero carbon economy worldwide, there's going to need to be an enormous amount of innovation I don't care whether it's upstream or downstream, hard tech or software. It's just there has to be a, a ton has to happen. And that requires, in order to go as fast as possible, it requires a really rich ecosystem that is supportive of um, entrepreneurs and technologists and everybody else who wants to go take a swing at something really big. Um we have not had the most supportive ecosystem, at least on a relative basis, historically. So the the positive version of this is that for whatever reason, the public markets spark um, a real change, like a fundamental change in how these companies can get to market and then what their end state looks like. But it is by no means guaranteed. So let's list out some of the ways in which this might go wrong after this moment. What do you think is like the top, what what would keep you up at night if you're spending all your time thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think anytime you see such a quick ascent in, in share price, uh, there's there's bound to be volatility because the expectations are so incredibly high right now. And I think they're candidly, you know, around specs, there have been so many companies that have pulled forward um, going public. And many of these companies might not be ready to be a public company. And that means you know, hitting your quarterly earnings and being measured on quarterly earnings. Um, so in the next two, three quarters, all of a sudden we're going to have, you know, multiple quarters uh, of, of earnings history for many of these companies that I, I imagine aren't going to hit those numbers. So it, it's hard to imagine a world where we're not going to see uh, a lot of volatility, um, at least in the short term. I think all of the long-term macro still exists. Low interest rates, ton of demand for ESG, 
ton of uh, shifting of oil and gas um, over to, 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 to this sector, uh, an administration that's incredibly supportive, um, whether that's policy or, or just rhetoric, it, it, it all matters. Um, so I'm really bullish long term, but but I would expect you know short term to see you know many of the companies that potentially have lofty expectations or just aren't ready for the public markets and and fail to hit their hit their numbers uh, impacting the the overall sector uh, in the short term. Right, I agree with that. I think it feels this moment feels very exciting, but it feels a little bit tenuous. And the worry is, you know, some of these companies their prospects are incredible and you know their new valuations may be entirely warranted there's no doubt that for some of them that that is not true um it's probably you know disproportionately true of the companies that have spacked because they have less time in the public markets thus far as you said many of them were not intending to go public yet and the reality of a lot of those companies at least the ones that we've seen so far is that they don't have a product yet they're pre-commercial um and pre-revenue so when you say we're going to have multiple quarters of earnings you know, for a bunch of those companies, we're going to have multiple quarters ahead of us of zero revenue uh, and a bunch of cash burn. And on one hand, that's what investors are signing up for. They're being explicit about that, right? And it's going to take a few years for a lot of these companies to prove out whether they're going to be able to hit their revenue targets or their commercialization targets or whatever. So they're, you know, if you're if you're investing in QuantumScape, which is a solid state battery company, which is one of these SPACs that's, you know, currently trade, I don't know what it is right now, but it's like, it's been upwards of $25 billion um, in terms of market cap. You know, they're explicitly saying like, we're going to go to market in 2025. Uh, So on one hand, you should be expecting zeros um, on the top line for a while. But the fear here, I guess, is that, and this is not specific to QuantumScape, but just could be any group of them. If a few... If, if the market falls out of love with a few, or if there are a few really bad eggs in the bunch and they eventually get weeded out, does it then drag down the whole sector? And I think that's really hard to predict. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a great point. I mean, obviously, you know, for companies that have to be in the market, you know, consistently raising public equity, I think that is, you know, that that's a risk. I think there there's another side of the coin there, though, where, where companies that would have otherwise been challenged now have this war chest. Um, where it's that where that war chest sort of makes their real uh, makes makes their company's vision and realization a self fulfilling prophecy. You know, you take companies like Ch- ChargePoint now, which are which is set, sitting on a mountain of cash, and it's not hard to imagine a scenario where they're they're quickly going to become the market leader and and can sort of create this flywheel around EV adoption by building out kind of nation and nationwide infrastructure. That's a good point and something that I think I mean folks who are involved in this sector will know it, but um, I think often flies under the radar here, which is whether in the case of a traditional IPO or in the case of a SPAC, you know, the the purpose of it is to raise a bunch of capital, right? And so in the SPAC, for example, typically the SPAC itself, the entity that makes the acquisition, has capital um, that it raised in the process of going public. But then in addition, usually there's something called a pipe that delivers additional capital. So all these companies that are that are SPACing, you know, they come out the other side of it with hundreds of millions of basically always hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes up to close to a billion dollars on their balance sheet. So they get a bunch of runway to prove out whether this thing will work or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know you and I have deliberated a lot in terms of the, the lessons learned from Cleantech 1.0. And, and while there are some really good takeaways from uh, from a lot of those failures, you know, one consistent theme with many of the failures is the companies just ran out of time, they ran out of cash. And SPACs and the public markets acceptance 
now gives them both. So that's that's what I'm super excited about. I think if this environment existed, you know, 10 years ago, I, I do wonder how many of those companies um, would have made it and would have had an incredible impact in our sector. All right. So um, potential pitfall number one is just like the market's turn, basically on on these companies, whether warranted or not, and valuations come back down to earth and maybe maybe even worse. Um, and this whole thing kind of fizzles. What else could go wrong? Yeah, I, I think the the excitement itself and having a, a big stock currency isn't enough on its own. I think you, you need a market with underlying fundamentals. And I, and I do think the fundamentals are there, but, but I think the market is pricing in the fundamentals getting much stronger um, over the next several years. Um, so things like you know, the Biden administration and what they might be able to accomplish, things like just broader awareness around climate change. We're going to have an administration for the first time that's going to be pounding the table uh, on climate change from and from a market perception perspective, whether you're a residential energy customer or you're a CNI customer, that matters. That matters for, for in terms of customer acquisition. It matters in terms of uh, creating that fly, fly, flywheel effect around new product adoption. Um, so, so I think things like that have to actually happen. And then I think... Um, Sort of what we talked about, companies like QuantumScape or ChargePoint, these companies that are that are building really critical infrastructure um, that's going to enable a lot of other companies to build picks and shovels around it. I think that that needs to happen as well for this ecosystem to um, to, uh, to to really make it. The the one other thing I guess, and this maybe is like a way that the first risk could play out. Um, in that, this is a way for some bad companies to end up being public, or not bad companies, but you know, like companies that, that aren't ready yet anyway. Um, to be public is is that the supply demand balance here is sort of funky. Um, in that, you now have let's just assume all these public companies that that are have inflated stock prices start to get more interested in acquisitions. Let's assume that simultaneously the older incumbents, be it the technology companies, the oil and gas companies, whoever, they feel the increasing need as well and recognize that that they have to make this transition. And then in addition to that, there are another, you know, 20 plus SPACs that have not yet found a target and so are out there hunting, trying to find companies that there there aren't that many because this whole thing, this whole flywheel that you just described kind of just started. So there's a lot of scarcity value. Like if you're a SPAC, right, and we've, we've seen this certainly with our portfolio, I'm sure everybody has, if you're a clean energy or a climate tech company with like a strong, strong, credible growth story in this market um, and, and, you know, good prospects, there are SPACs knocking down your door. There's like no question about that. In addition to what may be upcoming M&A interest and all this other stuff. And so the worry is that if that, that, that's good if you're one of those companies and it will foster more interest in, in earlier stage innovation. But do we worry that then because there is the supply demand balance is wrong in that it is a seller's market, um, we end up with some, some rotten apples somewhere in there. And how much does that poison the well for everybody else? Yeah, it, it's it's a good point. I mean, and I think it's sort of inevitable. I think anytime you have this many companies going public this quickly, you're you're bound to have some fallout, especially given how early stage many of these companies um, are going public. Public. I think what the market is telling us, though, to some extent, is they view climate tech as a long term bet. You know, especially a lot of the institutional investors that are backing these pipes. These aren't dumb investors. I think these are investors that have you know long term liabilities that, and they're looking for long term assets to match up with those liabilities and. They're bullish uh, on the long-term fundamentals of climate. So, so I do think 
Um, I think the market overall and a lot of maybe a lot of the retail investor base is going to be volatile. But I do think the institutional money that's moving into this sector is here to stay. And I, I think we're already seeing the snowball effect that has in terms of institutional LPs that are investing in private equity funds and venture capital funds and pushing them in this direction. And those funds have an eight to 10 year life um, all the way to the public markets. I think there's a lot of capital that's already made their bet over the next decade uh, that's not going anywhere. All right. So what are we watching out for then? Let's just say over the next year, um, what are the what are the signposts of whether we see the flywheel spinning or not? Or, you know, what direction we're heading in, I guess, in general? Yeah, I mean, a, a couple just off the top of my head. So, you know, obviously M&A is going to be, it's, it, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen and we're going to see more of it. I think the quest, question question is, um, how aggressive do buyers get? Uh, I think, as you pointed out, there, there are a lot of uh, SPACs out there that have to close a deal in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. And, and those deals are going to get done. And, and uh, I guess we're going to have to wait and see, you know, in terms of the SPAC market, which you pointed out, um, there are a lot of SPAC sponsors out there with kind of 12 to 24-month shot clocks, and I think there are going to be a lot of deals getting done, um, which is only going to create more uh, newer entrants uh, into the public markets. And, and then I, I think more foundationally, I think the one thing I would be looking out for, which and I imagine there are a lot of kind of listeners in this podcast who are kind of aspiring to move in our sector, and I would love to see people from other segments of tech moving into into climate tech. Um, and I think for the first time ever, it's it, it's incredible validation to see how big some of the outcomes can be, because at the end of the day, you know, wanting to save the world is a critical part of, of having a career in the sector, but you also need to, to see a path to success. And I think what the public markets are doing is it's, it's showing a lot of folks who want to save the world uh, that might work in media or tech or telecom or whatever, um, to it's inspiring them to, to also move into the sector and start companies in the sector. Samir Reddy is one of my partners at Energy Impact Partners. Uh, he is, as I'm sure you can tell, deeply insightful about, the, about this space and, and one of the best investors in it. Um, and I'm sure we will have to talk about this topic probably again and again over the next year or so. Expect to have you back on. But Samir, thanks for finally joining. Thanks, Shell. Good to see you. And I'm sure I'll see you in, uh, in the next hour. Yeah, right. Let's talk to you in 15 minutes. <laughs> Uh, this is The Interchange from Green Tech Media, and this is our last episode of 2020. So we will see you bright and early in 2021. Everybody have a great holiday and a happy new year. And now for some bonus content. We're closing out the show with a segment on the future of solar power plants brought to you by our supporter, Next Tracker. And we're talking to this guy. So I've always been a bifacial guy, junkie. That's Dan Sugar, the CEO of NextTracker. Dan's been a solar pioneer since the 90s. Bifacial solar panels produce electricity on both sides by exposing the back of cells. They can boost output by 30% on a reflective surface. Dan was exposed to them back in 1991. It's one of these things that's like conceptually simple, but it's also poorly understood. To harness the true potential of bifacial panels, Xtracker set up a state-of-the-art testing site in Fremont, California. 500 technicians have been certified there. It's where rapid prototypes for trackers come out of manufacturing and go into the field. It's also a operating power plant that um, powers our facility, and we uh, have a world-class bifacial test facility there. Uh, we have 18 uh, systems running in parallel with utility-grade metering, and we were able to empirically validate and also compare how different 
configurations of trackers and solar panels result in more yield. And what are we talking about in terms of improvements to yield using a tracker made for bifacial panels and today's bifacial panels? The gain with bifacial is heavily a function of you know a couple major parameters, uh, the largest of which is the uh, the reflection or albedo on the site, and then the spacing between the panels and the uh, the meteorological conditions. It's, it's the project's located and a few other secondary factors. Basically, when you add bifacial panels, you can reduce slightly the DC ratio, put less trackers, less modules, and so forth, and get the same amount of energy or even more than you could otherwise if you're in a space-constrained site. Bifacial modules are exploding in popularity. As wafers and cells got thinner, it made more sense to open up the back of the module. But it only makes sense to use panels if you can install and configure them properly, which is exactly what NextTracker does. Dan and his team are obsessed with boosting solar yields, and they released three new technologies that have resulted in as much as 12% more electricity in a single project. We introduced a technology over three and a half years ago called True Capture, which addressed undulating sites and uh, sites that have diffuse weather. We basically, in order to for that to work, you need independent row architecture. So each tracker has to be able to, to uh, operate independently. So because we had embedded all this technology in each tracker, you know, individual row inclinometers, motors, very precise measurement of the angle and control, we were able to, in the early morning and late afternoon, essentially optimize each tracker. And we do that by, with our, uh, uh, we have a control technology where we know if one tracker shaded relative to its neighbor. Then there's NX Navigator. This is a control system that allows plant operators to precisely track every parameter of a solar project in real time, schedule maintenance, and command trackers during extreme weather events. The third innovation relates to what we mentioned earlier, optimizing the tracker for bifacial panels. If you, so if you look at a NX Tracker system, our one portrait uh, tracker, You'll see there are eight or nine solar panels that are suspended between the foundations and the bearings in particular, and that the panels are elevated significantly over the tubes, which are possible because we have this like balanced architecture. What that means is there's more light on the back of the panels, and that light is uniform over the entire string. And so uh, compared to other one-portrait designs, it can produce up to 1% to 2% more energy. So when you add all these things up, you know, you have the normal tracker gain uh, that you would expect over a fixed system. You've got the higher rotation angle. You have the uh, higher true capture gain and you have the higher bifacial gain. And all those things are additive. Dan, the self-proclaimed bifacial junkie, is obsessed with improving performance. We keep updating. Keep. We have a smart system that keeps getting smarter. We're kind of updating it like Tesla keeps updating a car. It keeps becoming a better car. We want our uh, power plant, our owners, to receive the benefits of these smarter designs as we go. I, I actually look out my window at this test facility. And I'm just thinking all the time about, you know, the inventions our team's uh, fielding out there and, you know, how we can get, you know, squeeze more energy out of these solar power systems um, to lower costs and bring value to customers. 
Again, that's Dan Sugar, the CEO of NextTracker. If you want to work with a team of people as obsessed with yields as Dan, go to nexttracker.com. There you can find out more about how the company is advancing the connected power plant of the future with smart trackers across the world. In an upcoming episode, we're going to hear from Dan about how to protect solar power plants from extreme weather. Thanks a lot for listening.